you for this day that you've given us and for the blessings uh, that it's helped for us. We thank you for the promise that has been in it, that all things work together for good, and that you have been at work in our lives. We pray as we study together tonight that we'll have wisdom and insight into this particular passage of Scripture and recognize that what you had to say to them, you wanted all the churches to hear. So give us a willingness to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are looking tonight at the seventh of seven letters to seven churches. And our study to this point in Revelation has taken us through the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. We saw that the word Ephesus meant desired one, and it represented uh, prophetically the church from 30 A.D. to 160 A.D., and it's the church that lost its first love. Second letter we studied was the one to Smyrna, and we saw that the word Smyrna is the name of a resin that is crushed to produce the fragrance of myrrh, and it typified the church during that time when the Roman emperors, ten different Roman emperors, attempted to crush the church and destroy it from 160 A.D. to 312 A.D. The city Pergamos, word means illicit marriage, represents the church prophetically from 312 A.D. to 600 A.D., and it is a picture of the church in an illicit marriage to the Roman government. Thyatira means continual sacrifice, and uh, it typified the church from roughly 600 A.D. to 15, through the year 1516 A.D., as the church moved further and further away from the grace principles of the Word of God and began to uh, develop all kinds of systems of works and of penance, and uh, so it the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice, and it brought about a, a works salvation uh, instead of the grace that God had provided. The church at Sardis, the word Sardis means a called out remnant, and it typifies the church of the Reformation, uh, Reformation from 1517 to somewhere around 1750 approximately uh, in which the church, uh, we, we have the Protestant movement developing uh, as a result of Martin Luther's uh, nailing his 95 theses to the door of the uh, cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany, and his being excommunicated from the church, the Lutheran movement, movement starting, and then other Protestant groups coming off of that. Beginning around 1750, we had... Uh, a revival began to sweep around the world, and uh, that was proclaimed and uh, prophesied by the Church of Philadelphia. Philos Adelphos, two words, philos meaning love, affection, or uh, a responsive type of love, and Adelphos meaning brother. It's the city of brotherly love, and it pictures the church uh, of brotherly love when there was a time of, of worldwide revival and evangelism. Tonight we examine the letter to the church of Laodicea. Our scripture reading is found in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin reading with verse 14 as we follow through this passage to see what John was instructed to write to the church of the Laodicea beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. He that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The word Laodicea identifies the city that was some 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia. And uh, now we're about 30, 35 miles uh, south of the city of Ephesus. We said that as we studied the letters, if we were to chart them on a map, they would form a geographical circle. And so we are completing that circle as we come to the church of Laodicea. The word Laodicea is made up of two Greek words. Laos, which means people, and Decea, which means government. And combi combined together, they mean uh, governed by the people. So we move to a period that Jesus instructed John to write about in 96 A.D., a period of time that was coming when Christ would no longer be the recognized head of the church and when the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the structured church would give way to what the people wanted. It would be a time when the people govern the church rather than God being in control. The city of Laodicea was at the time that John wrote this in 96 AD a city of millionaires. There were a large number of very, very wealthy people in Laodicea, unparalleled uh, by any other uh, city in that area, uh, the number of very wealthy millionaires that lived uh, in the city of Laodicea. Paul sent a letter to the church at Laodicea, and we do not have in the epistles that Paul wrote a letter identified as to the church of Laodicea. We have one to Ephesus, we have one to Colossae. Uh, we have uh, two to, to Corinth. We have one to Galatians. Uh, we have one to uh, Rome. Uh, then we have uh, some to the church, two to the churches at Thessalonica. Uh, then there were some personal epistles. But we don't have one that is entitled the letter to the church of Laodicea. But yet in Colossians, in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 16, they are instructed to read the letter that Paul sent to the church of Laodicea. Some believe that that letter has been lost somewhere along the line. I, however, believe we have it, but it's under a different name. I believe it is the uh, book of Ephesians, the epistle of Ephesians. There are a couple of reasons why I believe that. I Notice I said I believe. I'm not saying it is, and I'm not dogmatic about it because it's impossible to be dogmatic about it. But there are a number of reasons that I give uh, for believing that it is the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. For one thing, uh, the phrase, uh, to the saints which are at Ephesus in the beginning of that letter, uh, that phrase, which are at Ephesus, did not appear in any manuscript until near the 14th century. And somewhere 
at that time it began to appear in the manuscripts. It is written more like a circular letter without any personal salutations and greetings that he normally did to a church uh, uh, that, for instance, in Corinth and in, and in uh, uh, Colossae and uh, in uh, Thessalonica. He identified, he made comments to certain ones there. He didn't do that uh, in that letter. The church, uh, the letter to uh, of Ephesians is very similar to the letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've oftentimes referred to the, uh, to the letter to the Colossians as an abridged edition of the letter to the church at Ephesus because uh, it doesn't go into the detail that the letter to the church at Ephesus does. I would really like to be able to identify that because we need to remember we're living in the Laodicean age. And what he said to the Laodiceans, uh, what Paul had to say, would certainly be relevant to us. Perhaps it's for that reason that the book of Ephesians is, is my choice. If you were to take all the Bible away, tell me out of the 66 books I could keep just one, and, uh, and I wouldn't be allowed to use any of the others, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus is the one that I would take. Uh, we've studied that uh, in a brief overview of it since I've been here. And uh, we, it's just packed full of, of doctrine that is relative to the church age and especially to the, ch to the time in which we're living. And uh, so uh, it perhaps was the letter to the Laodiceans, but we do not know that for sure. Laodicea... Uh, prophetically then represents the church of the last days from the date that I put is around 1950 until the year 2003 oh no I don't can't say that until the Lord comes again I don't know when that will be and I'm not going to start trying to guess and set dates as to when that will be. There are some that will believe that believe it will be in the year 2000, uh, but there's a couple of problems uh, with that. Some say, well, our calendar's three and a half years off, so we make it the year 2003. I heard that just last week, that in the year 2003, the Lord is going to return. You've always thought that. Well, let me see if I can throw a monkey wrench in the works. If the calendar's off three and a half years, and Christ was born three and a half years earlier than we thought he was, it should have been in 1997. <laughs> so we missed it. And uh, uh, But one day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day with the Lord. So when we start getting in the business of time setting and guessing, uh, we, we usually uh, miss it pretty badly. And knowing him with his sense of humor, he changed the date on us. Uh, but no, I don't. I, he's already got that written down. It's already scheduled. But uh, the lay of the sea and age began roughly around 1950, and it will continue until the end of the church age when the Lord comes in the air and calls the church up out of the world. Remember, it is a church where the people dictate what is to take place. And... Uh, we, we can remember the words of Paul to Timothy that in the latter days uh, many would depart from doctrine and giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, doctrines of demons, and would get completely away from the authority of the Word of God. Uh, it would be a time that would be marked when there would not uh, when there would be an attack on the ministers of God, uh, when, when the uh, elders would lose their authority, the people would no longer uh, recognize the authority uh, of the pastors uh, and the elders. Uh, statistic, my statistic is at least a year old now, a little over a year old, but uh, the last figure I had 
among Southern Baptist churches, uh, probably the, the statistic relates to two years ago, because I got the figure just, just a little over a year ago, uh, 5,000 pastors a year are fired, forcefully terminated by their congregation for varying reasons. Some are very justified. But uh, the majority of them are a result of not recognizing any authority on the part of the pastor, uh, the church wanting to dictate what he preaches uh, and, and what he says and all that he does. And uh, that's typical of the prophecy as it relates to the Laodicean age. Never have we been in such a time uh, as we are now when uh, there is such a scramble for power within the local church. Uh, it, it's really been refreshing being at Nyland uh, the past year, for it has that has not manifested itself to me yet. Uh, I haven't been able to discern anybody that's really on a power trip and, and trying to, to uh, hold things and control things at least in our present congregation as we have it now. Now, in the, the history of the church, in the recent history of the church, there's some evidence of that uh, with the boards and uh, attempts to manipulate and control. But uh, right now, there, uh, I just rejoice at the unity uh, that we have within the, the framework of the church. Yeah, it's, it, that, can make, that, that provides a basis for it to grow. And, uh, and to get someone in that wants to control things you know, before it's over. But uh, the, uh, uh, that's the general characteristic of this age. And so as we move into the characterization of Christ, as we have in each letter, uh, Christ identifies himself, or John identifies some aspects of Christ to each of the churches. In this letter it says, uh, first of all, he is identified as the Amen. The word amen is a Greek word. It's not a translation. It's what we call a transliteration. That is, you bring the Greek word into the English language and you give it English spelling and pronunciation instead of translating it by supplying an English word that has the meaning of the Greek word. The literal meaning of the word amen means let it be so, or let it be so, and let the saying of that be charged to my account. Whenever you say amen to something, you are saying, I'm in agreement with that. And the word, uh, in its original Greek context, not only implied that you were in agreement with it when you said amen, but rather that you would accept all the responsibility of having said it to begin with. So I call it the Christian's credit card because it means let it be charged to my account. Charge the saying of that, the making of that statement, charge that to my account. Now, it's, it used to be said that saying amen to a preacher was like saying sick him to a dog. But I don't hear a lot of amens uh, in our present congregation. I haven't heard a lot of amens in some of the other congregations I've been in. And in some of the congregations where I've heard some amens, it was what I called holy hiccups, uh, where they really didn't pay any attention to what they were saying amen to. They were just in the in the habit of saying it, you know. And I think it's nearly 12 times. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And in conclusion, you usually get a lot of amens when you... When you say that, finally, brethren. But uh, the uh, the the statement here, "Let it be so, and let it be charged to my account," is a term that is used to identify Christ. He is the Amen. He is the one that has allowed it to be so, and has taken it upon his account to do it. His truth, he has set it forth. Now. This word amen, as I said, is transliterated. Uh, in other places in Scripture, it's translated. 
not literally, but translated by the word verily, verily. As a matter of fact, uh, in the Gospel of John alone, you have verily, verily, that double phrase, 25 different times in the Gospel of John. So it appears that John was really uh, willing to, to recognize the Amen because usually the verities were uttered by Jesus, uh, the Amens, as he was willing to assume all the responsibility and pay all the debt in order that he might have a relationship with us. In addition uh, to being identified as the Amen, he is also identified as the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. We've identified that God is absolute righteousness and that his righteousness is comprised of perfect truth, perfect justice, and faithfulness or unchangeableness. Immutability is the technical word for that. So he is faithful and he is true as a witness. He's faithful to that which he has promised, and he's promised us a great deal. If we simply go through his word, looking at the promises that he has made us, we can have tremendous assurance and peace in all that he has promised to us. Then he is identified as uh, the true witness, true to his testimony, and only true to what he's promised, but the true witness in giving testimony. And for we as believers, uh, that can be comforting, but for an unbeliever, it can be very discomforting because uh, he will say to the unbeliever, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Some will say, well, what are you talking about? We cast out devils in your name. We healed in your name. We prophesied in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you because he is the true witness and the only way that we have a relationship with him is not by getting a dose of uh, religion and uh, getting involved in some church but by putting our faith and trust in him as personal savior and calling upon him to be our savior there is a, a new movement underway today within the church that is, is continuing to grow. It was started by a group in what's referred to as the Vineyard. And uh, it, it really is, it, when you examine it, and if you have any familiarity with demonology and, and demon activity at all, uh, it can be very frightening. Because the things that are being practiced in, in avowed uh, Christian churches by professed Christians today uh, in this emotionalism and things that is going on is uh, is right out of the pit itself. I uh, I heard uh, Hank Hendegraaff today talking uh, about the uh, the counterfeit revival uh, among the vineyard and he was giving some quotes and, and actually playing some tape excerpts from some things that men like John Arnott and others uh, have said. And uh, they, uh, they indicated that in this day men uh, were having greater visions than Paul and greater inspiration than Paul, uh, and that Paul and the rest of the apostles were going to stand in line to greet these new apostles into heaven because they were experiencing things that they had never experienced. And the things that he described are the very things that I've encountered in working with demon-possessed individuals. Well, they certainly are. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. Howling like dogs, and barking like dogs, and uh, and becoming as dead men. And uh, but uh, it's part of the signs of the time, of the age, of the Laodicea. When uh, I've had individuals say, "No, I don't open the Bible." Don't you dare open the Bible. I don't want to hear that. 
God has spoken to me and God has given me an experience and I don't care what that book says my experience is real whenever we do that there we have to throw away all the guidelines if you throw away the word as the authority then it's every man under his own tree doing whatever he wants uh, as in the days of Noah <laughs> even so shall it be in the time of the son of man but uh, but we are living in that time and so he is the faithful witness but he is the true witness and it's his word that must be the authority not what we feel not what we think not what we want not what we've experienced but what his word says and so he establishes that he wants the church to realize he is the amen he is the faithful and true witness and then he is the beginning of the creation of God some have without really investigating what the words of our Bible mean have read that and said he's the beginning of the creation of God oh he was the first thing God created and so he's really not the son of God and he's really not God then he was the first thing that God created the boy went home from Sunday school and told his mama said did you know that God made the world with his left hand and his mother said where did you hear that and she said well at Sunday school they told us that Jesus sits on his right hand so if Jesus is sitting on his right hand he must have made the world with his left hand but the reality is Jesus made the world the second person of the Godhead is the creator it says by him all things that were made that are made were made and without him was nothing made that is made. Now, when it says he is the beginning of the creation of God, the word beginning is translated from the Greek word arche, and it means the one in authority. He is the one in authority concerning the creation of God. He is the creator of all things, according to John chapter 1, verse 3. So these three characteristics of Christ are identified here he wants to set the record straight and get our thinking in a proper channel as he addresses the problems of the church of Laodicea that we need to know that Jesus is the authority and that as the creator of all things as the faithful and true witness as the amen we need to look only to what he has to say and then following uh, the characterization we are given uh, words concerning his admonition to the church he begins in verse 15 I know thy works literally says I know of thee the works I he puts it in that word order because he wants the emphasis upon their works their actions the things that they are doing and he said that thou art neither cold nor hot I would that thou wert cold or hot so we're looking at a lukewarm church a church that is neither cold as the church got during the dark ages nor hot as it got during the Philadelphian age, the age just preceding this, from roughly 1750 to, to roughly 1950. The church was on fire for God during that particular uh, point. Now the interest waned. Beginning at about 1950, uh, we find a change coming uh, within the church. Some like to blame it on the fact that it was post-war syndrome. Uh, during the war, there was a turn back to God uh, and uh, the old saying there's no atheist in foxholes uh, not a lot of atheists waiting for men that are in foxholes either waiting at home uh, a nation's faith seems to be rekindled when there is an urgent need but as affluence comes along uh, and and prosperity and peace people become apathetic and indifferent uh, to uh, God and everything else 
the highest attendance that has been recorded in our churches uh, in recent years, in the last 50 years, was recorded during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In those two weeks when it looked like we were going to war at least with Cuba and probably Russia, church attendance was higher than it has ever been in the United States. People felt threatened, they felt insecure, and uh, until things settled down, they felt like they needed God, but it didn't last long. I would with our work either hot or cold. Uh, here in this age, right here, we have people like Clinton talking about praying for, and uh, playing, playing religious bit when it suits their purposes, but they are, so the general public sees them and they know better, and uh, so that's all kind of, is a turn-off on relationship to God. That's right. Cold, and neither hot nor cold is playing games. The lukewarm, and you said it by playing games, the lukewarm is representative of hypocrisy. He, you know, he would rather you know, people either be against him or for him, not apathetic, not indifferent, not hypocritical, and that's that's what he's pushing. That's right. That's right. Now he says uh, that I would. That word "would" expresses a real strong desire. I really desire that you either be cold or hot, but not lukewarm, not a fence straddler, or as Billy Graham once said, a mugwump. He said a mugwump's the guy that sits with his mug on one side of the fence and his wump on the other side of the fence, and we've got a lot of mugwumps today, but uh, the, the need to show true colors. Either we're on fire for God, and we mean business with God, uh, or we're against God, and in, and um, and instead of God, we want things instead of God. Uh, God would prefer it that way. But He says, "I wish, I sincerely wish that you were either cold or hot." And then He said, "Because thou art lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth." The King James writers cleaned it up a little bit for us. The word spew, it's the word vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, makes him sick to his stomach, the church that is lukewarm, apathetic, hypocritical, and indifferent. Because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then he says, you say that you're rich, and increased with goods and have need of nothing. The, um, the church, universally, is pretty rich today. Uh, those in different areas of, of Christianity uh, own tremendous holdings. Well, the universal church, by the way, the word Catholic means universal, the Universal Church is, is one of the wealthiest organizations in the world. Uh, their the properties that they own and things. The fastest growing uh, cult today uh, is, uh, organized cult, is Mormonism. And their wealth, they are among the wealthiest of denominations that profess to be Christian in the world today. Matter of fact, they own the major food chains. I'm amused by the fact that they own some of the cola companies too. And while they don't want their people to drink colas, it's all right for them to own the businesses and, and sell them to others. But that's lukewarmness, isn't it? That, that's apathetic and indifferent. They, uh, they are also imitators. Uh, imitating what the early, early American church was, dressed up with Well, it's a religion based, like all of the cults and the things that the devil peddles, on works and appearances. 
and uh, and yet we find that going into the entire church, not just Mormonism, not just the cults, but within the mainstream uh, line of the church. He says, "You say you're rich, and you're increased with goods, and have need of nothing. We're in real trouble." when we get to that stage that we don't have need for anything. God, my God, shall supply all your needs according to his riches, according to that which God's grace has provided for us in Christ Jesus. But if we don't have any need, if we don't perceive any need, we'll not turn to him. We'll not be dependent upon him. We'll be self-sufficient and independent of his control and ministry in our life. He said, uh, you say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But he said, you don't know. The word know is translated from oidos, the Greek word oidos, it means to perceive or know something from understanding. You don't comprehend. You don't really understand, he said, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The word wretched, taliporus, means in distress. You say that you're rich and increased with goods and don't have any need of anything. You don't understand that you are in severe distress and miserable. Well, the word miserable here is not translated from the Greek word which, which gives us the definition that we have a miserable today. You say, I'm miserable. There's an awareness of misery. Uh, what the Greek word uh, elinos means here is to be pitied. You're to be pitied. You don't even know, he said. You don't understand at all that you're in severe distress and you're to be pitied. And you're poor. He uses a term in his counsel, buy of me gold tried in the fire. They had gold. The church was wealthy at that particular point. And uh, as it is prophetically in, in this period of time that we're living in, the church is extremely wealthy. But he says, you don't understand that you're in distress and to be pitied and are poor. There's no gold, silver, or precious stone. See, the wood says, uh, the wood, the word says, Whatever we build upon the foundation that Paul laid, we could build gold, silver, and precious stone. Or we could build wood, hay, and stubble. And that the fire was going to try every man's work of what sort it is. Well, gold, silver, and precious stone come through pretty good in the fire. Matter of fact, it cleans them up and gets rid of all the dross. But wood, hay, and stubble don't fare too well in the fire. They're kind of like the three little pigs' houses that the wolf would huff and puff and blow them down, one out of sticks and one out of straw. We need to see that that passage that compares wood, hay, and stubble with gold, silver, and precious stone, gold, silver, and precious stone are that which is produced when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit when we're in fellowship with God, when our sins are confessed. The same work that we perform that is gold when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit is wood when we're operating in the energy of the flesh. Wood is a symbol of humanity. Gold is a symbol of deity all throughout Scripture. So he's indicating that they have substituted uh, deity for humanity. Well, the movement today that has been identified as the New Age movement is not a New Age movement. It's an old movement. 
It's the oldest movement that there's ever been. It's the movement that Satan was involved in when he tried to overthrow God. It's the movement that Eve was involved in in the garden. It's the movement that spawns all the cults that we have today. It's the idea that we can become God, that we can measure up to God. And when we attempt to do things in the energy of the flesh, it's wood. When we allow the Holy Spirit to produce that same thing through us himself, it's gold. So gold speaks of deity, wood speaks of humanity. Remember in the temple, uh, they had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a picture of Christ. And uh, it was the Ark of the Covenant was built out of wood overlaid with pure gold. The humanity of Jesus, encompassed and surrounded by the deity of Jesus, was being pictured there. But the wood uh, that we attempt to to imitate the, the will of God in our life is going to be destroyed in the fire. Silver is symbolic of redemption. And uh, the the substitute for that is hay uh, rather than redemption it's the human effort it's being contrasted to silver and stubble is compared to precious stones the precious stones are identified in scripture as the ornamentation of the believer the the manifestation of the uh, the holy spirit his production in our life you want some, some precious stones, uh, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Those, uh, that fruit of the Spirit, those are some precious stones. So he said, uh, you, you are poor. You don't have any gold, silver, or precious stones. And he said, you're blind. There's no spiritual perception. You don't understand that you're miserable, in distress, no wealth. You think that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You lack spiritual perception, understanding. And he said, you don't understand that you're naked. You're exposed. You see, he's going to tell us how we need to be clothed when he gets along a little further. And, uh, and we know that, that our righteousness is the clothing that righteousness is the clothing we need and it's it's symbolized by by linen white linen garments and uh, we'll find that down in just a little while so he tries to awaken the church the church thinks that uh, that they are rich and increased with goods and don't have need of anything they don't understand that they're they're in distress they're to be pitied they have no real riches no spiritual riches no spiritual perception and they are open and exposed before God, for they do not have any righteousness to cover them. So he gives some counsel to the church. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. Now, he's using an idiom here when he says, uh, buy of me gold, because that's not something we can literally buy but it's something we have to depend upon him to provide. And so the, the term here to buy is to become dependent upon his supplying gold that has been tried in the fire. They'd been taken in with fool's gold. They had, uh, they had been suckered into the church is that is dependent upon the externals today. It's um, it's the kind of building they have, a uh, caliber of preacher uh, that they've got, the, uh, the congregation, the size of the congregation that they attract. Uh, all of those uh, are the things by which we evaluate whether a church is successful or not. Not whether it's preaching or teaching God's word. Not whether it's providing the tools to change lives, but the externals of that. And so they said, that, that's fool's gold. 
Now gold, he said, buy from me gold, acquire from me gold that has been purified by the fire. Uh, the word fire, remember in scripture, is symbolic of judgment. Uh, when when our works are judged, uh, and uh, and they they are judged by fire, the wood, hay, and stubble burn up, but the gold, silver, and precious stone we mentioned are refined. He says, "Buy me gold tried in fire." In order to be rich, you're going to need real gold, not fool's gold, and so we're going to have to be dependent upon that deity, that godliness that He can provide. Not that godliness that we try to imitate. And then he said, white raiment. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, speaking of the church, says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of of the saints. Notice he said acquire that from him. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't try to sew your own garments and manufacture your own white linen garments. Uh, they'll be flawed. But accept the righteousness that he provides. The word righteousness, remember, means that which conforms to the specifications of the planet. Your attempt in your own energy to accomplish the standards that God has set up with faith. Your garments will be soiled. But if you, in childlike faith, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God's grace is given to you. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And so you receive a clean, white linen garment from Him that will... Uh, cause your nakedness not to appear. Your shame and your nakedness will not appear. And then he adds this phrase, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve. The city of Laodicea was noted for the manufacture of a world-famous eye salve that they sold and imported around the world. And uh, it was advertised on television and newspapers. Well, maybe not. It was not. Maybe maybe they didn't advertise it on television. But they promoted that it would improve your vision. And so using their own propaganda, he said, anoint your eyes with eye salve. You need to improve your spiritual vision. He said that thou mayest see that you can have then some spiritual understanding and perception of what's going on. You see, the real irony in Laodicea was that with all their wealth, what they really needed couldn't be bought with money at all. And so many people today miss the straight and narrow way that leads to life because they're looking for something they can do. They have to pay penance. They have to uh, spread their guilt some by doing some system of works or by paying some great price. But just to throw yourself upon His mercy and accept what He has provided, a lot of people's pride get in the way and they just can't do that. <coughs> they're not about to accept charity from anyone. I had a man tell me that one time. He said, well, if I can't earn my way into God's kingdom, then I'll just miss it because I'm not, I've never accepted charity from anybody and I'm not going to start now. And I said, oh, uh, who fed you when you were an infant? Who changed your diaper? Who took care of those needs? You allowed charity to change your diaper, to burp you to feed you, to take care of your needs. Well, he said, well, yeah, but I wasn't able. I said, neither are you now able. There is no way that we can appease God by our own human effort. 
or if we are all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So with all their wealth and all their dynamics, they thought that they were all right with God and God said, wake up and smell the roses. And that's where the church is today. The church is affluent, has prestige, uh, just don't have any needs, able to take care of all the needs. And I'm not talking about the local congregation. I'm speaking of the church in general, the Laodicean church. So he says, uh, let, me, uh, let me give you some further counsel. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, if we are without chastisement, we're bastards and not sons. We're illegitimate. And let me tell you as a Christian, if you can sin and God does not deal with you about it, you don't ever receive chastening. If you've never been scourged by God and chastened by God, you better dig down into that lockbox of yours and find out, get, get a hold of your birth certificate and find out who the daddy is on it. Because he said that he scourges every son that he receives. And I don't think, ladies, that that's just because we're sons. I think he includes you in that too. Uh, that we need to, to understand that it's designed, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that word chasten doesn't mean to just <clears throat> clear my throat when you're doing something wrong. It means to use the cat of nine tails across your back. He says, be zealous and repent. The word zealous translated from the Greek word zelevi, and it means boiling hot. He just told them, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now he says, get boiling hot. He didn't really prefer them to be cold. He wanted to show their hypocrisy by that statement. But his desire, well, his command, is to become boiling hot. And repent means to change your mental attitude, reverse go in the opposite direction. Then he gives the call to commitment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I think it's important for us to notice Christ on the outside. <laughs> He's not in the church. He's outside knocking on the door, this church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, the action of hearing and of doing is left up to us. He's not going to force himself in. But if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. Talk about our eternal relationship coming into us. He said, I in you and you in me. That we become one as He and the Father are one. And we talked about that fact that when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the Holy Spirit enters us into union with Christ and we become one with Him. We are said to be in Christ. So He said, I will come in to Him. The one that that will receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior, that will hear His voice and open the door, He'll come in and we'll become one with Him. And, He says, and sup with Him. So, salvation or relationship with God on one hand and fellowship with God on the other hand. Not only will He come into us and live in us, but He will fellowship with us. Then the statement that we've had before to him that overcometh we read in 1 John 5 3 through 5 who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God 
And so by our faith in him, we are overcomers. Here he says concerning the overcomer, I will grant the overcomer to sit with me in my throne. Quite an honor. Place of responsibility and ruling and reigning with him in eternity. Those that overcome. Even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He was obedient to the Father. And so when he ascended into heaven, the Father said, Sit on my right hand until I make all thy enemies thy footstool. And then in conclusion, the invitation, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So next week, we're going to go through and we're going to do a brief synopsis of what God's saying to the church at Nyland Acres. And uh, I'll get a new revelation from God during the week that I'll be able to share it. No, I won't do that. What we're going to do is compile what He has said in each of these areas to the various churches in order that we might understand what His message is to us today. And we might be able to identify with that. So Laodicea means the church governed by the people. Instead of Christ being the head of the church, he shoved aside and the people going to do it their way, do their thing, instead of letting God be in control. That's what happened when they, they said, no, we want a king. It's a, there's a very interesting parallel between Israel's relationship with God and the church's relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah, he told them when they went in the land not to have a king, they would be a theocracy, theos God and ocracy government. He would be their king. But they wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king. So he gave them one and two and three and others down the line. Not his design for them, but his permissive will for them. Samuel told him that you've not rejected me, but you've rejected God. That's what he told. Yeah. All right. Any other comment or question on our study? Well, let's remember our prayer needs. We, uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to be in prayer for our promotion that starts tomorrow on KDAR uh, concerning our seminar our seminar that's coming up next week uh, we there'll be uh, there'll be some 30 second spots starting tomorrow uh, and going through uh, Thursday of next week so I don't know if any of you ever listened to KDAR alright so listen in see if you can hear our spots and, uh, not all the time yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. I got a call from KDUR today, whoever they are. And uh, they told me they're going to be announcing perhaps my name sometime during the next three days, maybe a week. But you have to listen from 8 to 5. And if you call in when you hear your name, get a good prize. Be a wealthy person. She said, well, I said, well, you really don't need to put my name on there because I don't have never heard of KDUR. And uh, I don't listen to the radio very often anyway. All right, let's be in prayer for that then, for our, our promotion and for the seminar coming up. and for our services, of course, this coming Sunday, for the continuing prayer needs that we have on our on our prayer list. Uh, remember, Minnie, she's, I guess, got the flu, been throwing up all day long, we're supposed to go out of town tomorrow, and uh, I don't know that she's, if she doesn't get any better, she's not going, and uh, I have a, a wedding to conduct uh, in Livermore, California up in the Bay Area, East Bay Area, just just southeast of Oakland, uh, between San, San Jose and Oakland up in that area. It's actually a little east of San Jose. And uh, 
I have a rehearsal on Friday and then the wedding on Saturday and then Saturday afternoon and then we'll drive back home and be here for Sunday morning. But uh, pray for her that she'll uh, get to feeling better. We, our plan was to go tomorrow and, and spend the night at our kid's house in Sonora on the way up. But she's got a lot of motivation to get well, but she said, if I don't get to feeling better than I am now, I'm not going anywhere. Remember her and the other needs. Continue to pray for Jean as she starts facing reality now, setting in with uh, her loss. Uh, T uh, continues to need our prayers and uh, the others that are on our prayer list. Let's pray together. Our Father, we just thank you for the teaching that we find in your word concerning your love your compassion, your mercy, and your goodness, and the promises that you've given us for answered prayer. And so we come to you tonight asking, Father, that you might consider our requests, that you might minister to those that we have identified and the others that are on our prayer list and the causes that we have mentioned. Father, that in your infinite wisdom, you might provide that which is best, and that you might help us, Father, to be bold in our coming before your throne of grace. He's told us we have not because we ask not. And so we come asking for healing and for your miracle power and strength and witness to our church and on our prayer list. And we give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.